Hey, this is a special bonus episode of the moment. Ed Levine, who's a fascinating guy, has a book out this week. So I wanted to get the podcast up while his book um, is freshly in stores. So check out the pod and go get his book and enjoy this thing. And here is the moment. Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. All right, this is going to be great. I'll tell you why, because um, my guest today, first of all, my guest today, Ed Levine, whose new book, Serious Eater, um, is out in June, is, you can make the argument like the most beloved person in the food world, but for me, what's really significant is I have known and loved Ed since my 20s. I'm 53. I believe you and I met when I was probably 24. I think so. You were you were an A&R guy. Yeah, and you were sort of helping out this record company that I was working at. And writing your dad's speeches. And yeah, I guess you wrote a speech for my father. Um, though I can't remember my dad really reading speeches, but I I believe that you <laughs> I gave wrote him my some father's fodder uh, for a speech. I, I believe that that's the, the case. Um, but when we met back then, um, we definitely talked about our food enthusiasms. For sure. Our enthusiasm for reading mystery books. I remember that because your wife Vicky is this, an agent. And, and I delivered you a a box full of mysteries. I remember that office. really clearly. Yeah. Uh, and then, as fate would have it, um, Amy and I and our young family moved into the building you'd lived in for a long time, a building and an apartment that's a character in the new book, actually. And, um, you know, we became sort of like family. I mean, your son and my family. So um, it's just awesome. And that's been, you know, we've been living in the same building, neighbors and close family friends now for like 16 yes, years. And, you know, Brian's very modest, but Brian, you came to my son's high school graduation and you've been, my my son's in the movie business, the television business, and Brian has been his mentor. But do you remember actually going to his high school graduation? I remember it really clearly, it was like, super clearly. And when Vicky and I were like, we can't believe that Brian's going to Will's high school graduation. Oh, I love him. I mean, he's the sweetest boy, and I got to – I mean, he's not a boy anymore. He's a man, but, uh, you know, you and I coached his basketball team. Yes. Together, which is all to say I'm really glad to be able to talk to you here because um, reading your book, which is a, a memoir – and why don't you describe what yeah. the book is, Ed? Well, the book is is really my journey. It's the journey of Serious Eats, right? It started as a $100 food blog uh, that – and as anyone who started a blog can tell you, is what you have to pay, either blogger or blog spot. And now, I guess I don't even know how people start blogs, but um, it was it was my emancipation proclamation from I it was you know I I was freed up from pitching. The idea behind a blog is so great because. I'd only have to pitch myself. I say in the book. Yeah, you would pitch yourself an idea. I want to do a story on all the great fried clam joints in in New England. Great idea, Ed. Do it. I never had that interaction, even though I had great editors along the way. But why you were perfectly set up to do this is that – and one gets this from the book. So I'll I'll say what the book is also about. It is all that stuff. What the book's about is a a boy who lost his parents at a young age – took solace in food and music, and then figured out how uh, to follow his enthusiasms eventually to finding a career, but whose heart got trampled a lot in the process. Yes, it was because I'm, you know, I'm, when you have those things happen, you know, I lost both my parents by the time I was 15. Um, you're resilient in one, in some ways, and not so resilient in, in others. Yeah, broken right? in other you're, ways, and, and you're devastated in others. And to say otherwise would be to ignore the obvious. And and so the book, one of the things I noticed, and the reason I say you're so perfectly suited to do what you do, even when you started the blog. I mean, now it's clear you've won seriously to this incredibly important site in the in the world of food and culture. But it's you know, even as you casually describe events that happened 55 years ago. You remember what the burger tasted like. Yeah, it's weird, right? And, it, and you remember what was served at various conversations you've had where most of us would remember where we were, maybe. Um, you remember which French fries you had. It's true. And and it's funny because the editor and the publisher of, of the imprint at Random House Portfolio, which published the book, they kept pushing – 
for that stuff. They, you know, like Adrian Zakheim, who I went to college with, who's the publisher, kept saying, I want to taste the food, dude. He goes, because when, when we have lunch, this is how you talk about food. And uh, so I pushed it, maybe past I, where I would have on my own. But I, and it ended up okay because I do remember and, and I remember things, I remember things for the book that I hadn't recalled before. You know, which is crazy. Well, reading it, though, it doesn't seem forced at all. It doesn't seem novelistic. It seems like the way that it somehow seems to me that the the tastes and smells of food are a huge memory cue for you. Absolutely. That- and in my family and out, you know, and, and, and the other part of that is is that when you – Every family has tastes and foods associated with it, right? And and we all remember the first pizza place we went to, right? I'm sure you could tell me all about the first pizza place that became your hometown slice spot, you know? And, and I can do the same thing. But, you know, it th- that's all sort of becomes embroidered into a fabric of family. Right. And one of the other the the other things that the book is about is when you've lost that family, when the family has been broken apart by horrific circumstances, that when and when you and when I create so when I created Serious Eats, I was actually trying to recreate a family. Well, well which that- is a weird thing. Well, Maybe. you've done it over and over again, it yes. seems. <laughs> Recreated these families. I mean, one, you have your family, but um, you've always had these groups of people that you go around and eat with and talk about this stuff with. And um, and it seems to me that that, you know, I was thinking when I was reading the book of Broadway Danny Rose, because in a way, you're a Broadway Danny Rose character who won, who figured it right. out. And be- because a lot of what you talk about in the book is how much you were able to recognize a certain kind of greatness whether in musicians, artists, uh, people who made food, you know, bakers, cooks, right. chefs. And then you wanted to proselytize about them. You wanted to get close to them. You wanted to sort of touch their magic. Yes. I you wanted... didn't want to be them, though. No, you I... kept learning. It seems to me you would say about somebody in the book, they love to cook, I love to eat, or I thought I wanted to learn to play this axe. In fact, I just wanted to hang around with the guys. It's totally true. I wanted to tell their stories and... I wanted the world to know about them. It's the way, same way you and I talk about food was the same way I talked to people about music, and 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 by the way, and that came from my my original family. You know, my father was. I have a picture of my dad addressing a an unemployed workers rally in Union Square. My dad was a missionary. You know, he I red diaper baby, and he he defended. The Russians invading Budapest in 1956. Red diaper baby means a child of communists. Yeah. And so we were a family of missionaries. It's like I I say in the book, we did have to sing for our supper. But the result of that is, you know, there are a number of years where you're young in New York. You're, you know, there's this great scene with Wynton Marsalis, which I can't believe you've never told me before, <laughs> picturing you trying to talk, you know, one of the smartest guys in the world yes. and letting you manage him when you had, just, that's <laughs> no, had insane to, to me. Yeah, him. That's crazy. Like he knew where he was going in the <laughs> right. world and all that um, is amazing to me. But, uh, but then, you know, you get a wife and family and you're not, you, you kind of make a decision. And, and a lot of people who listen to this podcast are people who are working jobs. They wish they could do something else. They... But you, it was kind of the reverse. Like, you would dip your toe into a job. But the truth is, you had this crazy amount of insecurity, uncertainty. And so I, I want to ask, because a lot, a lot of what this book is about is a guy who has a toolkit. He's very smart. He's very connected. People like him. But he keeps either getting fired from jobs, downsized from jobs, or quitting jobs because they don't agree with him in some way. Yes. Disappointing those around him. Uh, because he needs to chase his enthusiasms. Now, I've spent a lifetime chasing my enthusiasms. I got really lucky in certain ways that my enthusiasms dovetailed with something where there was a market. And, yes. You know, my enthusiasm with poker at the per- and screenwriting at the perfect moment. Well, I always, and I've told you this about Billions, it's like 
every episode, your your enthusiasms are on display. Yes, that's clear. But but how scared were you? Because we're reading the book now and we're going through these bad times. But what we know is you sold the company, you got out, you saved yourself, all this stuff. But can you just talk a little bit about how you learned to manage the kind of uncertainty that would crush most of us. Like, what was your self-talk? How scared were you really most of the time? What were your nights like? How did you sleep? I think, for one, I was terrified uh, every night for nine years. I was terrified. But here's what I knew. I knew what it was like to be totally devastated, right? I knew what it was like to be without a home and without parents. So at the end of the day, I knew I could call on this, I don't know if it's a deep well or a veneer of resistance, uh, of resilience that would, that would propel me forward. And so it was like, well, compared to that, this uncertainty, this stress, this anxiety, you know, it's one of the reasons, um, you know, and, and the book is a love letter to my wife in part because she was, she put up with this person who could live with his uncertainties, with a lot of uncertainty while pursuing his passions, right? And and, and she had to work and she and was a she, successful person, right, she, but the whole burden was on her for exactly, a long time to she keep had the, a success, the family going. She has a super successful literary agency. She's my agent, although she couldn't be the agent for this book because it was too close to her. And it was like, I can't be the agent for a book that's about me. And of course, if she had her druthers, and you know my wife, I would have never written this book, right? It's like she's a very private person and people yes. will learn a lot about her. And she, look, I'm happy and Look, I'm the luckiest mother in the world, right? You know, it's like the advice I give to people is you marry up and you hang on for dear life. And I don't mean marrying up financially, but yes. like emotionally. No, emotionally, but no, but what you were, what you were saying when you, we started talking about the Vicky had to handle it yeah. was you got good at managing this yourself, even if the people around you were worried. Yes, you, right. exactly. And that that created a lot of dissonance, right? Because she was like, I say in the book, nobody asked, when you fall in love, nobody asked you about your tolerance for risk. Yeah. And that is it in a nutshell. We fell in love because my wife is brilliant and funny and beautiful and all those things that you want a wife to be and fundamentally decent in ways that I can only aspire to be. But... We didn't say, you know, at our first date or even uh, at at our wedding, it's like, and we and we will uh, follow each other no matter what risky things. Even if it means uh, risking our apartment, our home, on a food, our retirement on a food food blog. Exactly. Well, because also, Ed, it's not like you went into tech and decided to do this as a twenty-eight-year-old. Exactly. Because there's another thing that that was terrifying for you, I'm sure, but is inspiring for people, which is. You were basically my age, the age I am now. I'm 53. I was a 52-year-old first-time tech entrepreneur. Who had just been a basically a freelance journalist before that. <laughs> yes. I mean, you'd done some consulting, yeah, but yeah. essentially, yeah. you were a freelance journalist who decided to go into this tech space not knowing how to code. Not one. Never written one line of code in my life. Right. So relying upon others for that stuff and having to sort of just follow. So what did you learn about when to listen to supposed experts and when not to. Because it's a delicate balance. It's so and crazy. This is a great chapter when you talk about these sort of experts giving you various pieces of advice. And at first, you're hewing pretty closely to it until they move you out of your own office. Right, right, exactly. Because when you're, when you're confronted by what you don't know and, and, and you're like me, you want somebody to tell you how things are going to go. Right. And so what happened in that in that first iteration of of the blog was I had all these people that I some of which I had worked with that I thought were more more experienced, knew how to code, knew the tech world. And so I actually learned the hard way that, you know what, 
in a certain way, even though I didn't know shit about technology, I had to trust my gut. And what I discovered that the most important skill, and I bet you can relate to this, is to build a tribe of like-minded people that share your values when you're building a business, making a television show, doing whatever. And so what happened was, if you remember in the book, I talk about going from Team Serious Eats, which was all the guys that sold me down the river, literally, to Tribe Serious Eats. And I know, you know we're both friends of, of Seth Godin. I'm a much more casual friend than you are. But Seth wrote this amazing book called Tribes. And I, and I read it after, after my Serious Eats experience, but before I wrote the book. And I realized... Right, yeah, because I, yeah, I introduced you guys. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. yeah. It's like, wow, Seth wrote a book that, that's all about building a tribe and that's what I was doing. That's when you found Adam and Kenji and stuff. Then exactly. it was your people. Right. And 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 if you find the tribe and they do share your values, you know, there's How just... weren't you worried about weren't you worried though I, um, about bringing people into your tribe when every day it was almost a referendum on whether the thing would live till tomorrow? Like how did you manage that <laughs> it, it internally? Was, it's <laughs> It was really rough, and and Kenji writes beautifully about it in the yeah. forward, yes. right? Because, you know, he's he'd say, you know, well, Ed was great to work for, but he had a really terrible poker face. And when you know, when somebody who was going to invest money didn't invest money, or someone was going to advertise didn't advertise, we always knew it. So I I think I did it kind of badly, but I did it well enough. I created a place which is all about what we do in our work, right? Where I would allow people to do their best work. And, and, and I turned out to be pretty good at discovering talent, at being a food writer A&R man. And so, and, and I was pretty good at it in music too. You know, I did a lot, I produced a couple of Dr. John solo records that I'm really proud of that sound good to this day that I know you've heard. And, you know, so that's what sustained me is that I knew I also just didn't want to let all these people down. You know, I, I don't know if you can relate to this, but it's just like Kenji in the book. There's this amazing moment, right, where I'm paying him $30 a column. That's all I had, right? It wasn't like I was taking a helicopter. And this is Ken's, Kenji Lopez, also, well, who's right? A, who's become who's a very important, the, yeah? Famous. Who's the, you know has had probably the best-selling cookbook of the last fifteen years, and I would argue the most influential called Food Lab: Better Home Cooking Through Science. So I, I'd I was, say yeah, Kenji and, and Samin. Yeah, yeah, Samin now, now, but yeah. even you know, Samin has the television show, but even that hasn't. I don't think, but. You, uh, you're right. The two but, of them, probably, yeah. yeah. But the point is, is that uh, Kenji was like, okay, well, this is really fun because he's letting me write what I want to write. He's letting me uh, in, write it in my own voice. And so when he was faced with Chris Kimball and uh, his cohorts then at Cook's Illustrated, at which Kenji had written for, they were like, oh, we want you to come back and write your books for us, and but you can't write anything more for Serious Eats. And yeah. so he came to me and he said, listen, you know, my wife's in graduate school. We don't make any money. You know, uh, you're paying me $30 a column. <laughs> you know, I'm making burritos as a private chef for people on the Upper West Side. And uh, Chris is offering me sort of a regular uh, amount of money for writing these books, and he'll allow my name to be on the cover the first time anyone other than his name is on the cover of a, of a Cook's Illustrated book. And and I was like, oh shit, you know, because by this time Kenji had become really important. And but I said, you know what? I understand, man. I totally get it. Your wife's in graduate school. You're being paid thirty dollars. I think you'll do better here long term, and I think I'll be able to hire you in three months. But I do not have the and money so to happened? hire you now. And he came back and he said, "I'm going to stay." Right. Which was such an act of courage and grace 
on his part. And of course, it worked out perfectly. It for worked him by out. The end. I mean, that was the best thing. I didn't let him down, you right. know. And there are many people like Kenji who started at Serious Seats. Well, one of the fascinating things also about your life, um, and I knew this before reading the book, is without calculating it, without trying to build a series of allies and connections, it seems to me that by living your life with these enthusiasms and your desire to connect people, you ended up building a network that became sort of a safety net. Yes, you. it's true. I never really thought of it like that, but it was. It was, you know, and that's that's the way I live my life, really. And, and that started in music, right before food. Yeah. But you're right. It was a safety net. I mean, I didn't know. I couldn't identify it as such. But you're in, thinking yeah, back when you talk now, about because as you go through the book, you know. You're meeting the people who are at Russ and Daughters, and then you know Pete Wells at the Times. And then it feels like you were building um, this uh, tapestry of connections. Yeah. But not with an idea that someday you were going to push a button and hope all these no. people were going <laughs> right. to take your work and right. talk and about it. Right, and a business. Yeah. To, to the world. Yeah, for sure. But how did that happen in New York, man? How did you end up... Sort of becoming a figure because, you know, again, it's about this is about Vicky, but you, you were um, not writing. You were like a marketing person, an advertising person, chasing your enthusiasms in your spare time. But then you did a crazy kind of thing, which is wrote like decided to write. A, I wrote this book, first book about can, New York. Can you talk food. about who you were then sure. and, and what the realization so you I, had yeah, then? How yeah, old were you then? I was uh, – how old was I? I? It was in 19 – the book came out in 1991. So I was like 40 years old or, uh, or 39. And I was running a small ad agency in the media business because I've always been in – mostly except for one time when I was working at a big ad agency, which – People hear about when I was working on hemorrhoid medicine. Yeah, it's a pretty low point working yeah. on hemorrhoid medicine. Although I did, you will relate to this. I don't even know if I put this in the book. I recommended to the client at Anusol that they licensed "You Can't Sit Down" by the Dovell. No, you don't say that in the book. You do not say that in the book. That's awesome. <laughs> but they didn't like that, and the people at J. Walter Thompson also didn't like that. But anyway, um, and so my wife said, "You are miserable." You know, she said you were coming home at I night. Was and she, could, home. she said this great writing in the book where you say she could hear the door, the way that you opened the door, the key in the door lock. She could tell you were miserable. Exactly. And so she said, You got to write something. And so I loved Patricia Wells' books, The Food Lover's Guide to Paris and The Food Lover's Guide to France. And what I loved about them was the stories she told about the bread bakers and the chocolate makers and, and the pastry. And this was before people. Chow Hound, right? Oh, it was before It was any before of that people stuff. there was for like sort of this idea it, of hey, you can go to a neighborhood and we're gonna tell you where the where yes. not the cool place is, but where the delicious place right. is. Right. And so you know, you asked how I formed the network. Well, how did I do that book, right? So I I wrote that book on the weekends. I would go it was to called a New York neighborhood. Eats. It was called New York Eats. I would go to a different neighborhood and people in even and I would even go to Brooklyn and people would say, You're going to oh, Brooklyn? Funny. You know, it's like you what you need a visa to go to Brooklyn, but then you kind of did yeah. need a visa, and so, and I would ask these sausage makers about what they did, and I had no idea what kind of reception I was going to get. They turned out to be so happy that anyone was interested because it was pre Chowhound. Now I'm telling the story, and people are going. Well, you hear about this stuff all the time now. But then you didn't. But then you didn't, you know. And well, the food thing still wasn't – there was no glamour um, really attached to being a pierogi maker no, back then, no, right? Yeah. Now you could be an artisanal pierogi maker and be on the cover of yeah, magazines. Yeah. But back then you were just um, a babushka from wherever I, and – I was just you're, a guy pursuing my passions, you know, and, 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 and that's the way I developed the network. Right. It was like, OK, so I got to know the people from Russ and Daughters and I related because my grandmother sold pickles on the Lower East Side out of a barrel in the winter chat with chapped hands. And so they became part of my extended family and all the people who were so happy to talk about what they did and their and their heritage and their traditions. People take it for granted now because we're inundated with it. 
but back then, as you say, it was pre-foodie. You know, there's this great, uh, Danny Meyer says, you know, he, he talks about, um, it's also an important documentation of the very early days of foodieism, as we know it, written by someone who rewrote the playbook on food journalism and in doing so in generously inspired and encouraged scores of gastronauts, cooks, restaurants. Because you weren't coming from a play above. You weren't trying to come from no, above. No, I wasn't dispensing information from on high. Remember media, magazines, Vogue would tell you what to wear. Gourmet would tell you. This what is to also eat pre. I mean, cook. listen. Liebling had written his books, but they were not at a high point in the culture where no. people were reading and them. So he was it, more known as a boxing yes, writer and then. So yes, and I don't think Bourdain had written Kitchen no, Confidential had, yet. No, this was all before Bourdain. Uh, Bud Trilling, Calvin Trilling. Well, I, I loved Calvin Trilling. I read know, all his books I, back then. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly proud and privileged to call him a friend now. Not that we ever talk about my work. I'm just too busy going, God, I can't believe I'm hanging out with Calvin Trillin because, you know, Calvin Trillin and, and, and um, uh, Nora Ephron were my writing heroes, you know, uh, because they had that. There was a conversational tone that I loved and yeah. there was an elegance that I could only aspire to. Yeah, I mean, Nora, Nora had this ability i didn't know her so many of my friends knew her and i'm my she's my daughter's ultimate writing hero but she had this ability to be more authorial and expert in a way she she was not afraid to be top down and say what what was acceptable and what right. wasn't in a way you're you're not interested in that as much as no, a, no, you're as trying much. to just find the magic in a but, way right exactly but that was our common ground and i got to know her a tiny 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 bit uh, and she wrote a, in her in the book. I feel bad about my neck. She she talks about looking for the cabbage strudel yeah. of her childhood, and she said I, I using called you Andres to do and it. I dropped Ed Levine's name so loud you could hear it in New Jersey. It's you fantastic. Know, you yeah, know, no, that's what a great what a great moment for you. But how did you um, because there was none none of this existed? How did you figure out where to go? Was it because you had just been doing it on your own? Like, how did you know where the best Kanish was? How did you know it was, where to go try this pizza? How did you know, oh, people are making Asian food that's different? Yeah, I, it was trial and error. You end up eating a lot of bad food. You, you have a six-inch stack of clippings from every newspaper and every magazine. Uh and then you it's a matter of i think therefore i am and so you you know i would opine and and people would ask me when new yorkese came in like who are you to tell me what the where the best brownie is i said i love to eat i think i have good taste and i part of the fun for me as as it is when we get together is that we don't agree on everything and it's yes. okay we've talked a lot about chicken pizza over the years, and you wrote a fantastic piece about in chicken book. pizza yeah, in sure. my pizza book. But to me, my opinions, if they start a conversation, that's what's great. And, and you're right. I never really thought of this before. Nora wasn't interested in really starting the conversation. and, and no, I She was this, putting the period on the sentence. Exactly. She was putting the period on the sentence. So, uh, But I loved the conversation and the joust that resulted. You're a tumbler. Yes. You want to engage in that stuff. I want with to engage people. in that uh, stuff. Well, I, I was thinking about a lot of this book, and it's a thing writers have, but you know, you became a writer in this sort of you kind of snuck up on it. You didn't really call yourself a writer for a no, very long time. No, for a long time life. I was someone who wrote. Right. Um But do you think part of having your family ripped apart in the way it was led to you having a particular not only comfort with being alone, but a kind of need to keep this running conversation going with yourself. Yes, I think so. And I never really thought of it the way you just put it, but I think so. I think it was, it was in a way, it was mandatory to keep me going, you know, to have this conversation with myself and to always um, be the person. And this, you know, my mom was one of these women who could light up a room, you know, and, and she could relate to any one of my friends. And if you combine, you know, I have some of that ability, not the way she had it. Um, and and you're right. It, that's sort of 
it was a way to keep me going. You know, that's the weird thing, you know, uh, about the book and about my life. Because I can picture you as a 16-year-old going to a place that had blintzes and you didn't have a, a mother or a father. Your brother was in this quasi-older brother role. So the conversation about, is this a good blintz? Is this a great blintz? Do I like cheese filling or fruit filling? For me, it feels like, in a way, it's the kind of uh, the way a child talks themselves to sleep sometimes. Yes, like that it's totally true. It was it was an endless series of conversations with myself. As you were trying to figure out, what do I believe about the world? Yeah. And from the, who's the best jazz sax? You know, is Dexter Gordon better than Sonny Rollins? Exactly. Or is this... You know, is that why? Why did I used to like overcooked spaghetti, and now I understand it has to be right. I'll tell you, and it does feel like you've tracked this stuff. And I guess what's moving about it is many people don't. I'm interested in how did you find, figure out, or to trust to take the conversation from inside after taking all these losses and risk putting it outside. Was it scary to you ever? Or did you no, just feel like nothing I, was scary because no. you'd already paid? Exactly. I'd already paid. What What's the worst thing that could happen? It had already happened. Right. Right? The, my personal Holocaust had already taken place. You know? And so I think it was that. And, and it was this overriding desire to share with people the, my passions and so the people that I was passionate about would get the recognition they deserve. Do, did you make a choice? Do you think not? I always wonder this about like human, just people's nature. I mean, do you think you just weren't a dour person? Like, did you make a choice not to turn dour and, and inward and, um, you know, decide, fuck it, the world's an unfair place, so I'm just going to take mine? As opposed to, yeah, the world might be unfair, so I better live to my... Like, it seems like yes. you made this choice. Well, yeah, the world's fucked and unfair. I'm just going to try to enjoy every minute, right? Because you have two choices in that yes, spot. Yes, for sure. You can decide it's fucked, so fuck it. Exactly. Or it's fucked, so I'm going to try to live. Yes. and it, Was it conscious or you just built that way? No, I think it. I was built that way. I think it was wiring. And that's why it was really important to me to have the first chapter in the book be about my life before my parents died because the first 12 years were just an absolute pleasure. And so you think they actually set you up? Yes. You know, it's like... To, 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 to know that a, jo a joyful life is still possible. Yes, I think so. And it was a combination of the wiring if, that combined with that. You know, that enabled me to, you're right. It's like a lot of people would get bitter and it was like, because we know if, look, if you're damaged by events in your life, early in your life, you're, there's two ways to go. You put it perfectly. It's like you either like fuck the world and it's okay if I fuck everybody else along the way. Yeah. Right? That's We've all met those people. We've all met those people. I write we about know, them a lot. Right. Yes. Yes. We know about those people. You do. You write beautifully about them and, and or I, what was interesting was I did have a life with my parents and my family intact and it was a joyful life and so when when I lost my parents it was I I still had it in me to maintain that joyfulness yet and and that's clear and it's true in all the things you write and in all like you know the 30 years of time i've spent with you but it is also i noted and wrote this down to talk about you didn't really hesitate to bring instability into your own no. <laughs> kid's life <laughs> yes. not the instability that you were going to die like i mean everyone takes the who right, knows right but sure. but you 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 didn't choose then to say, well, okay, I am going to, as your other family members did, hey, I'm going to build a life that's as secure as I can. You know, the, the, the instability you felt, you did sort of, you know, your son knew how loved he was and safe in many ways. But your wife and son did have to deal with this idea of, are we going to have to watch dad crash and burn? Are we going to have to watch him be dis sure. you know, be sad? Yeah. And and I wondered if you how much you allowed yourself to be aware of the 
of the echo of the ramifications on Vicky and Will. Yeah, you know, I think um, I think in many ways, and this is an all too frank appraisal. I think I had blinders on. You know, it was like this is what I do, this is my jam, and uh, one way or another. I will always make sure there's food on the table. Uh, and uh, I don't think I, I didn't offer it to Vicky as a choice. Uh, and I'm not proud of that, by the way. It's nothing to feel, there's nothing to feel pride over. Uh, but it is true. And, 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 but and, it didn't worry you at the time. You mean you're, you're more aware of it having come out the other side yes, than you were at the time. Absolutely. And I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know if you ever felt like that when you were a struggling screenwriter, you know, it's like, I know this is hard on people. I, had, I think I had more of an awareness of it. You did. I did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we would, yeah, like the years, I think, first of all, the economy of scale was better so that my good screenwriting years, yes, they sure. were able to float the years that weren't as good if we were aware, Amy and I, mm-hmm. and sort of careful about it. But we, w- I w- that said, it, there was no doubt that when I w- would make a choice like, hey, for the next year and a half, I'm, I'm not going to take screenwriting jobs. I'm going to go try to make Solitary Man. I'm going to get paid a tenth of what I'm used to getting paid. But we're going to all just hump it because artistically I have to do this. Right. I would say I was conscious. It was very important to me that the kids wouldn't have to change their quality of life. But Amy and I, would, I was definitely conscious about like, well, that might mean we're not going on any vacations. Right. That might mean all sorts of things about the way yeah. we were going to live our yeah. lives. But we would, I would say slightly differently, we would talk about it. In yeah. We, we, would, we would talk about the, the ramifications of it. But I still wouldn't not do it. Right. Exactly. I, was... I still had to do it. But I would say I had more security than you because of – I was in one industry mm-hmm. and I knew that I had a – even the years that were bad, like I had a position in that yes. industry. Yes, and you I had knew enough... how to get – you knew that – and you're kind right. Of. It's like, it... again, this is where the blinders come in because I'd always say to Vicky, look, I can always get a consulting uh, right. uh, client – I didn't really know I could always get a right. consulting client. It turned out I did, and I had a really good track record as a consultant. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think you're right. It's, it, and, and as you say, the upside, you knew that your upside yeah. was... A fair, uh, yes, a different kind of upside. Yeah, and you, look, and I had great years as a consultant. Sure, of course. You know, but it was certainly less certain. <laughs> sure, now that we're talking about it. Yeah, right. Well, well. so one of the great things in the book is that you get, you just get fucked over and screwed over by people you trusted a bunch of times. Yeah. And um, the way you manage it is so different than the way that I manage that kind of thing. So... I'm of the Godfather school. Right. Uh, if you are somebody who earns my trust and you fuck me over, you are dead to me forever. And right. I'm, and that's, if I give you my loyalty, I am loyal to the end. I'll go bury the bodies for you. But if that is not returned, uh, it's over. Uh, it seems to me that you are able to constantly see the best in these people or their own pressures. That doesn't mean now. I now, what's funny reading the book is, of course, I remember a few times having dinners with you or running into you, t- and you telling me snippets of these stories, and you were fucking angry. Oh yeah, for sure, because there are two businesses that almost launch and they get torpedoed for similar but different reasons. And I remember those things. I remember when right those people screwed you over. But it, you know, there's this moment where an old friend of yours hurts you, and and then you say, "But we kept playing basketball together, and I stayed in his life. We stayed in each other's lives. Why?" I think I was... And what do you get out of it? Why is that the better choice? Right. I I think I was always afraid, in some ways, probably more afraid of my anger than you are afraid of yours. And so if you're afraid of your anger, you're afraid of like, fuck you. You just fuck me over. So the... I mean, you didn't want to go to the darkest place you could go to because you knew this well of anger. Exactly. You would rather blow that anger out and then privately or whatever. and I... Yeah, and, and, and again, you know, without getting too psychoanalytic 
oh, about all this, it's like, you know, when my mother remarried, which is in the book, and then I had a stepfather that I didn't get along with for a year and a half until she died. This was after my dad died. I, I couldn't acknowledge my rage and I never talked about it with anybody, you know? And so I think I got, I, I got in the habit of burying my anger. Which isn't a good thing, by the way. It, it it worked for me in some bizarre way, but I I wouldn't recommend it. Well, but okay, this is the question. Do you think do you think it paid this the ability that you had to take these losses because your hopes I was thinking about it in terms of the worlds I've been in. And like it was like a couple times a movie got greenlit and one and you had the actors and you'd hired the crew. And like a week before. Right. I remember running into you when you would tell me that. And that same thing, yeah. I don't think people understand the same thing happens to the Joel Cones of the world. Right. I mean, much more rarely. Right. But, but it does but, happen. But but when that kind of thing happens, I can find it debilitating for a lot, like a period of time. Then you pick yourself up. But it seems like you have the ability, Ed, to just like go like, okay, I'm angry. But then... To just like square your shoulders and march forward again. Yeah, I, I. How did you teach yourself that? I, I think because there have been a few times in my life when I, when the anger would go unchecked. Yeah. And it would have unfortunate, not cataclysmic. But, but you're saying the results, the, the long term echoes of it blowing up turned out to be worse for you. Because of the blowback. That exactly. And what I said, I said to a friend the other day is I learned to leave my anger in draft. Good. You yeah. know, it's like, which is a really interesting way that I think all people who use email can understand. Literally, my inbox is full. My computer is full of angry drafts. And, uh, and I always address them to myself. Very smart. Important to right? do. Because you don't want to accidentally never put the hit other person's email right, in there, right? Accidentally, you don't want to accidentally hit send. I mean, there are hundreds of them. There are literally hundreds of them, and I just leave them in draft, and and that's what I learned. And the book is about, in some ways, leaving my anger in draft. And again, I don't like my son, who you know is much more like you. Is like when he would get fucked over, I'd say, "Will, are you upset?" He said, "No." Just when I get a chance to, you know, I'll get even. I'll get even someday. And yeah, as you I get was, older, you stop caring about getting even. It's more just that there's no chance of the person coming back. Yes, into rehabilitating my life, I would themselves. Say. They're done. You know, yeah. if someone breaks trust, yeah. right, people make mistakes. Everybody, sure. we all fuck up. Right. But I'm saying if somebody breaks trust or lies in a big way, I, know, I no longer feel it's useful to think about revenge. Who cares? Yeah. But I do, they're just, it's over. For yeah. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and Will is much more like you than me. In that regard. In that regard. And, and I think, I don't know whether it's healthier or not. But it seems it's like just it served different. you, the other thing. Is yes, the other thing did serve me. And, you know, it's, I, I, it's just one of those things. How did you not, there's no bitterness in this book. There is disappointment, but no bitterness. And like me... You've lived among, and because of the world you're in, you've lived among incredible wealth all around you, uh, in New York City, in these food places, uh, uh, and these kind of people who would lean on you at times, want your counsel, want your advice, you know, because you're a great storyteller and you know everything. How did that all, when you then wanted to raise money and some of them were willing and some weren't willing, how did you process your relationships with those well, people and with that that sort of aspect of the food world in New York. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know it was it, it was pretty organic. It as you say, it wasn't like okay, now I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this and I'm going to go to this person to raise money or I'm going to go to this chef to do stuff for for the site or whatever. It was just it just happened organically, and you know when it came to raising money. It, the thing that we've been talking about, right, which is my enthusiasm was all I had, right? Because everyone – I had a business plan because you had to have a business plan. But, but the bottom line is, as I say in the book, 
my pitch was basically three, four words. It's going to be great. That was it. It's going to be great. And of course, you have to have a business plan that says you're going to scale and people are going to get Well, it was hilarious when you said it was going to make $37 million in the third right. year or something like right. that. Right, exactly. Which is not right. what happened. Right, and I, always, I say to people that business plans are by definition works of fiction. You know, th- disguised as nonfiction. And, and, pe- and I, I live that, so I understood it. You know, and after a while, like the 10th time where I didn't, I had to explain why we weren't at $37 million in revenue. You know, so like, okay, I need to revisit this number, you know. But I would always come back to, but it's going to be great. I know it. It's like all those times in the book when, when it looked like the site was sold and I was on easy street and I was going to end up making... Vicky really happy and we were going to be financially secure and then it didn't happen it was crushing and yet I didn't know what else to do but to keep going it's like I couldn't afford to let this thing go that's clear I mean I remember a few of those disappointments when it seemed like it was going to sell and then it didn't and I remember watching you ride off on your bicycle one day and just being like, how is he getting on that bike and going back down there? <laughs> it's true. People I don't understand. Like, like He just found out the bankers just called him and said, the deal's off. And he's on his bike and he's it's cold <laughs> out. And he's just pedaling down back down to the office again. <laughs> it's true. Uh, it's the, true. And it, it's amazing. Really inspiring to me. It, just a few more things. Um, how long did it take you to adjust to the fact that you won? Because you've been fighting, you've been a guy trying to win for 40 years. Winning along the way, you know, you're, I mean, and by the way, I want to point out, I wrote this down to say, and I want to say it before I answer this, which is, you've given back a ton, you know, you had people take care of you when you were young after your mother and father died. But reading the book really made me understand your love for a bunch of these kids that you tried to help along the way. Friends of Will, people Will down on the basketball court. Who you tried to surrogate? Yes, that's right. Who you, you tried to Darren. be a, yeah, yeah. Who you tried to surrogate father for yeah. and all that stuff, and I had gotten to schools, and I, I think it's amazing that you, you know, you did a lot of humanitarian stuff along the way while all this was going on. I mean, I just you don't even really put that in the book. Yeah, no, I just no. witnessed yeah. it with my own yeah, yeah. eyes, um, which I think is important. And obviously, it made a lot more sense to me when I read, when I read the book. I understood right. where that sure. came from better. But how long did it take you to accept, like, you're okay, you won, you've done it, it's you're a, you're not pushing anything up a hill anymore? It's it's like I didn't know how not to be Sisyphus. That's what I'm asking. Yeah. yeah it's like – and there's this chapter in the book called Aftermath where, where you know, I sold – like the, the literally my old investment banker had said it's not over until the check clears. So the check cleared. In 2015, in June of 2015. You sold Serious Eats. Stayed at Serious Eats, but sold. All good. Exactly. My employees made some money because by then they owned 20% of the business. So like Uh, Kenji got rewarded for sticking with it. Exactly. And my investors who'd long ago kissed their money goodbye were thrilled to get most of their money back, like 90% of their money back and some stock in the new company. And, And yet I didn't know how not to be Sisyphus. And so there's this chapter in the book called Aftermath where like, A, why aren't I happy? Yeah. Why isn't Vicky happy? Why isn't my brother happy? And why aren't my employees happy? And uh, and so I, I would say the answer to your question is I'm still trying to answer it because, look – by anyone's measure or standards, it's, you know, we did it. You did it. We fucking did it. And I just was so used to being Sisyphus, so used to to constantly being confronted with my absolute refusal to lose, which is different than winning. And so when I finally won... I couldn't switch the, the gear from refusing to lose to winning. And so, it, it, you know, I think it continues to this day. And it's the book has helped. Writing the book has actually helped. Because in writing the book, you know, and I don't know if this is true when you start a script, it's like, 
I didn't really know what the book was going to be about. Oh, I always figure stuff out. Yeah. Yes, you figure you stuff figure out, out along the way. You and so, to. you know, at first I thought this was going to be a prescriptive business book before a friend of mine said, yeah, the subtitle would be How Not to Start a Business, you right, know? Yes. And so, so, you know, I realized what the book was about and what my life is about after I wrote but the book. Do you ever now have those moments when you're having those conversations with yourself, though, where you realize Ed Levine won? Yes. And you Good. know what? I'm start I'm but yet it's right, it's four years later, Brian, and I'm just starting to have those conversations. Like I to with a, to the point where I can think about how proud my parents would have been. Yeah. And, you know, just how proud I am and Vicky is and Will is and my wife's my uh my brother's widow and and i'm i'm just now getting to that point well that's good because we i mean you should know like we all felt that way i mean i remember amy and i when we learned that this happened that when you told me i was just like look at that like he did it like all these years later he's 60 years old how old were you when you sold it uh i was uh how old was i it was it was 2015 so i was yes i was 63 at 63 years old you know you were able to finally put one up on the scoreboard that was an <laughs> un sort of an unkind like a win and by anyone's yes. definition yes for what sure. a what a thing that just gives everybody a hope and and i'll say you know one of the the, the only downsides of having someone who I'm so I know so well on the podcast is there's there's tons of stuff that people get from the book that I just know so we didn't go through and the book is also a wonderful triptych through New York in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s yeah where, in fact, where, my editor said New York is has to be a character well in this the book. idea that we really understand how the food world shifted and changed and where the deliciousness was and it's really worth reading for those reasons and it's really worth reading just to take the journey inside Ed Levine's head with him. Ed, thanks for doing this. People can find you on Twitter sometimes. Yes. On Instagram. Yes. Uh, you can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. You can email me the moment BK at gmail.com. Read the book. Go to Serious Eats because you're still there for yeah, a little while there. longer yeah, or sure. however yeah, for longer. Yeah. And um, I, I want the sequel to New York Eats now. I think it's time <laughs> for you to it's do It may be coming, you know, because I, I went and had a pancake at this place called Chez Ma Tante. And yeah. I was like, I think I ran into you. I was like, fuck, I just had this pancake that changed my life. Yeah, I'd been staring at that pancake because we shoot near there, but it's never open when we're there. Right, because it's only open for dinner and then the weekends. Yes, I didn't know how you got the pancake. Well, I went on Sunday morning. Vicky was away at a writer's conference. I was like, I'm literally getting into a car. Just going to go to try the pancake. I'm going at 10 o'clock when it opens because that's the only time I can get in. I'm I'm not eating carbs right now, but when I start eating carbs again, uh, it's pancakes in the morning and then Anthony's pizza in the afternoon. (laughs) It's a perfect day. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Thanks, Ed. Thank you.